double Elvis. Dear young rocker, the restlessness you feel in amnesia is similar to the restlessness you felt in youth. Stuck, begging time to pass as quickly as possible. There will be moments that will feel new and fun and other moments that will be painfully, catastrophically slow. And just like having amnesia, in youth, you're going to pass through what feels like many different worlds, what feels like time traveling through different time periods, into lives you could have had, into worlds you never knew existed. Thinking back on a lot of almosts and what-ifs, some of these worlds will be elegant and stuffy, filled with white dresses and diligent schedules. Others will feel vacant. Some will be quiet and foreign, others big and exciting, filled with loud music and loud cities. You'll be drawn towards the light, distracted at times by its glory. No matter where you land in your travels, music will always ground you and take you back to wherever you wish to go. You see, time doesn't really exist on a linear path. Music is the wormhole that leads you back to your safest space, back to wherever you call home, wherever home might be at that time. The lyric, the tune, that brings you back into that moment, the one that makes your world around you disappear, that feeling is home. And that sound, whatever it is, is all that you'll need to make any loneliness and pain of feeling so small in this world melt away. Young Rocker. We were broke growing up, but CDs were something my family splurged on. Something that was important to every member in our household. It was something we each held sacred in our own ways. My father had his binder book of CDs, and my mother had her binder book of CDs. And right before my birthday, they gave me a mini case to store my own collection in. We were never allowed to touch each other's CDs or borrow them without asking. But eventually, my mother started to trust me and allowed me to play her CDs on our stereo system in the living room when she wasn't around. I made sure to keep them clean, never throw them around, and handle them with as much care as possible. I knew if one of them skipped when I returned it, I was done for. And that's how much CDs meant in my family. Loving music was the one and only thing we all had in common. My father was always the flamboyant valley girl type sassy diva, and my mother was always the playful bitch. And I mean that in the most loving and honest way possible. I love those things most about them, even when they don't see those parts about them as good, 
I think it makes them who they are. And I've always found it beautiful how unforgiving they are about this. But they were kind of doomed from the start as a couple, coming from completely different worlds. My mother's side of the family were poor, rowdy, working-class folks from Alabama and Florida, while my father's side were from New York and New Jersey and very Italian. The change in accents alone between these two environments during the winter holidays was enough to make you dizzy. I listened as my father made fun of my mother's family, and my mother's family made fun of my father's family. I was in the middle of what felt like a war, and the tension was me. The war of class, the war between the North and the South, the war between my parents. She ain't one of us. She's a Yankee, the Southern side would say, introducing me to one another on Thanksgiving. This is our granddaughter from Atlanta. She was born here, but she's a Southerner now. Her mother is from the South. That's how my Northern grandparents would explain it to their friends on Christmas. It felt like I was from nowhere, only half welcomed with hesitant arms. I was always the other. I was the embodiment of a country divided, a family divided. I split my time almost equally between Atlanta and New York once we relocated down south. And one day, my mom packed me up and handed me my own little binder book to put my CDs in and said my grandparents wanted to host me for the summer. My grandparents on my dad's side often hosted me in New York for the summers, sometimes even on random weekends when they would request to fly me in. When I finally met my father's side of the family, I was partially induced into their world. I was given a small rabbit fur coat and a tiny gold diamond ring for my small finger and brand new toys that all had to be left in their boxes at the door to be packed away, left in a basement on display in a grid waiting for my return. Everything stood still there. Objects, people, time. My grandparents lived in a crimeless neighborhood that was quiet and safe. Neighbors waved to one another and knew each other's names. You'd drive by houses with children all playing together in freshly cut, perfectly manicured yards with white picket fences. It looked like old television shows I'd watched late at night, like Leave it to Beaver. It felt like a childhood. And the place had an eerie perfectionism I was happy to indulge in. I decided I wanted to take tap classes, ballet, jazz, piano, music lessons, chorus, swimming, horseback riding, karate, and private tutoring. Life was different here. If I wanted something, I was taught how to have it, not just wish for it. Everything felt old, but somehow sparkly new. Everything looked untouched and well-maintained, Wood paneling and black leather upholstery and shag carpets. They had a zebra skin sofa in the living room and decor that made it feel like we were at Graceland. 
They drove me around in their 1969 shiny, what looked like brand new, black Stingray convertible. And we'd listen to girl groups from the 1950s and 60s. My grandparents were young, still in their 40s, and they had always dreamed of having a daughter. I became their everything, and I was everything they ever wanted. And I had the crystal blue eyes that matched theirs to prove it. I looked like a small clone of my grandmother when she was younger, and they often displayed baby photos as proof, and acrylic frames scattered throughout the house. But this wasn't just a few states away from what I was used to. This was worlds away. Their home felt so different from the world my mother built for me, where everything moved so fast. Unlike my grandparents' house, a world with manners and expectations, when I lived with my mother and father, they didn't care how I spoke, or if I cursed, or what I wore. At my grandparents' house, I was taught how to properly set a table or where to place your fork to signify that you were done and to have your dishes be brought away. At my mother's house, I always cleared my own dishes. And we almost never ate dinner on a table, but propped up together, circled around the television in our living room on the carpet floor. Living with my grandparents, I got to just be a kid. They picked out all my clothes and meals and what we did as a family. They would take me to the mall on weekends where there was a giant carousel that played loud music while it spun around. I would get to pick out which horse I wanted to ride, staring out the large plate glass window in front of the food court. That was the biggest decision I had to make living with them. Which color horse I wanted to ride. I always picked the black horse because they had just bought me a VHS copy of the movie Black Beauty, which was a lot different from watching Halloween or Joe's Apartment, movies my parents had just taken me to see. When I got done shamelessly being a little kid on the carousel, I saw a woman walking around the food court, wearing black baggy jeans that swallowed her up. She had on a tight crop top with black dyed hair, half put up with gel in the bangs that hung in her face, lots of black eyeliner, a large plaid button-up shirt left open to expose her shirt underneath. I wanted to be her. I thought she was the coolest girl I'd ever seen. She was a 90s punk. My grandparents suddenly noticed her too. I can't believe someone would dress like that. No respect for herself. It's disgusting. They both scoffed. At that moment, I realized we were different. I'd been having the loveliest time with them getting to be a kid. With all the warmth and love they had for me in that household. But in that moment, I knew I had to hide what I truly loved. I had to hide pieces of myself and what I truly wanted and what I was really like living in the South with my 24-year-old mother and the clothes I actually wanted to wear. They couldn't know that the goth punk girl in the mall and I probably both owned the album Dookie and we both listened to Throwing Muses, that we had the same taste in music and clothing, 
She probably watched Ren and Stimpy too. I realized I probably had more in common with a stranger that they hated than the grandparents that I loved. And I was heartbroken. I realized I could never tell my grandparents about the pizza parties and red cups and cramped apartments filled with cigarette smoke, apartments that smelled like cats, where I spent most of my time with my parents and their friends. They couldn't know that my first concert wasn't with them, seeing the Backstreet Boys. They could never know about my parents sneaking me into Atlantis Morissette concerts, front row screaming our heads off, not caring if I cursed singing the lyrics. Are you thinking of me when you fuck her? My mother and I sang in unison while staying out all night on a school night. They couldn't know that I had just seen Fleetwood Mac front row. Stevie Nicks was so close to me, she watched as I sang along right beneath her feet. Eventually, I'd fall asleep, curled up in a tiny ball in my chair, and the last three songs of their set went until almost 1 a.m. My parents made fun of me for falling asleep in front of a legend. It was something I never thought they'd let me live down. Experiencing music as a small child, often in the front row of these concerts, was something that heavily influenced me. I can still remember so clearly. And seeing Atlantis and Stevie and Melissa Etheridge made me realize that women could stand on a stage and command an audience. It made me realize that performing was an option. It was something I could do. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to sing. I could feel the sound and the music while it consumed my entire body. It wasn't just in our car anymore, playing loud with the windows down. It wasn't just in our living room on our stereo playing from a CD. This was real. It wasn't person. The sound was all-consuming. A year later, my grandparents would take me to what they thought was my first concert to see the Backstreet Boys. And I would let them think that, to have their own little joyous moment. I never told them the truth about Atlantis or Stevie. I didn't want them to know that I didn't want to be quiet or shy or sweet like bubblegum. I wanted to be loud and boisterous. I wanted to be a punk. My grandparents wanted to throw me five birthday parties. A party for every year I was alive, and every year that they had missed. And that became our tradition when I went there. One party was in a formal banquet hall, with white linen tablecloths and black tie waiters and plate settings. It felt more like a wedding than a five-year-old's birthday party. They'd then have a children's party later in the week, an adult party on a weekday night, one party where they rented out an amusement park. And as we were walking out the door to head to my fifth and final party, I stopped suddenly and plopped down on the steps, exhausted from all the parties and hosting. 
I started to feel a weird feeling in my stomach. My eyes unexplainably started to fill with water. Maybe it was just the exhaustion or the multiple frilly party dresses with matching scrunchies that were all laid out for me, but the stress of it all, of hosting and being so composed and so proper, being the center of attention was something I wasn't used to. And I started to cry. My grandmother took both my hands and started singing Leslie Gore, It's My Party. I was so taken aback by this response that I stopped crying immediately, jarred by what was happening. My grandmother told me I could just sing whenever I felt sad and make it all go away. Even music was different living with my grandparents. It wasn't your church, your religion, the thing that was saving you. It was distracting you, pushing you to be braver, stop hiding and stop crying, be whatever version of yourself you wanted to be. They started making me sing and perform at the crowded dinner parties they'd often host and taking me to Broadway musicals, and they bought me a karaoke machine to sing on. After dinner, my grandmother would let me put on her long black cocktail dresses and perform in our living room. I was extremely shy, and I didn't particularly want to, but my grandmother would beg me. Come on, come on, Naughty, come on. They were trying to break me out of my shy little shell. With dancing lessons and private tutoring, the goal was to eventually get me on television. She's gonna be a star, Pammy. They saw something in me and wanted to foster it. They saw something in me that no one else saw, something they wanted to nurture. My mother shipped my birthday present to me and listened on the other end of the phone while I opened it. My grandmother stood above me nervously expecting wild snakes to pop out of the box or some sort of snarky, inappropriate joke. I opened the box to find it filled with one dollar bills. A hundred dollars in Toys R Us ones, an entire box full. And then I found what was buried underneath. It was a pink and teal boom box. My two favorite colors, as if my mother had had it custom made specifically for me. It was mine. I was so excited. My grandmother looked horrified as my mother cackled over the phone, telling me over the speaker how the woman at the toy store tried to slip in a few fives or tens, and she would catch her and say, Nope, go back, all ones. Laughing at the adult reference she was giving for a child's birthday gift, my grandmother uncomfortably started to stutter. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Say, say goodbye to your mother. It's, it's time for your friends to come over, and then you have piano lessons. Thank your mother for your gift. To be honest, I loved it. I finally had my own way of playing music. I could take it outside with me and listen to all my CDs. I could have a moment of music that was just mine. I could jump on my trampoline and listen to moon pools and caterpillars. I could jump around my room in my bedroom to Offspring. 
I could sit high up in the tree in my backyard listening to letters to Cleo on full volume. Music was now something that was just mine to have a private moment with, to have just to myself, all alone. I ended up not going home after my five birthdays, spending the year indulging every fantasy I ever had living in New York, trying everything I ever wanted to try, being everything I ever wanted to be. At the end of the year, my grandparents sat me down and asked me where I wanted to live. Not just for the year, but for forever. I missed my feral, lawless ways of living in Atlanta. And if you ask a child if they want cake for breakfast or eggs, they'll probably say cake. My grandmother told me decades later that as I was boarding the plane to go back to Atlanta, my grandfather looked at her and said, letting me go was going to be the biggest mistake they'd ever make. They sent me home with the soundtrack from Copacabana in Greece and a small Casio keyboard. It wasn't the same as playing the oak upright piano at their house with the ivory keys. I had memorized the feeling of the grooves with my fingers so I could play with my eyes closed, and the weight of each piece of wood would measure out the timing of each note, bouncing back to me with a rhythm. The little Casio keyboard was useless in terms of how I connected to music through touch, how I felt everything through touch, how I could close my eyes and just play based on the feeling of where each groove was in the ivory, or the weight that bounced back to help me keep time, or the way the bass notes rang out and permeated the air, so thick you could breathe the sound into your lungs and feel it in your chest. The new plastic little keys couldn't ring out the same. Practicing on it wasn't a full-body sensory experience that could easily be memorized or recreated. The Casio felt foolish in comparison. I let playing fall to the wayside after I moved back home. It wasn't the same as the piano. It didn't even compare. Nothing compared to the year I spent living with my grandparents. The music I wrote and played the songs I got to dance to, the dance lessons and the music lessons. I discovered who I was and wanted to be and what I wanted because my parents let me. And then how to get it, how to get what I wanted from my grandparents. I was taught what hard work, determination, and focus looked like. But nothing was the same when I moved back to Atlanta. The tiny, dinky plastic keys didn't ring out the same. Nothing sounded or looked the same. My once bright crystal blue eyes that matched my grandparents faded to a dark green once I moved back to Atlanta and turned seven. The doctors said they'd never seen anything like it. Coming home, my mother let me decorate my bedroom as a welcome home gift. I had moved into my fifth bedroom in three years. After sleeping on the floor for months at our old place in Atlanta with my mom, I finally had my own bedroom again, and I was allowed to decorate it however I wanted. I was the designer. My grandmother decorated my last bedroom. 
After weeks of asking what I wanted, I broke down and told her. I missed the puffy white down comforter that my mother and I shared. The one we would cuddle up under and watch movies together. I wanted something cotton and fluffy and simple. I came home to find a white linen bedspread with frilly hand crocheted flowers on every square with matching hand crocheted lace on the ends and hand crocheted throw pillows. I pretended to like it and thanked her endlessly. I had never had anyone try so hard to make sure I felt comfortable and care so much that they redecorated an entire space for me all on their own, just for me. It was frilly, extravagant, delicate, and feminine. Nothing like my bedroom at home where I would often drag my comforter two stories up in a tree, spending time between branches. This was not a comforter that belonged in the dirt or in between tree branches getting stuck on fall leaves and twigs. My grandparents would have never let me have the purple inflatable sofa and chair that I wanted. They would have never let me tape magazine cutouts of Julia Stiles onto my walls or let me watch the movie The Faculty. My grandmother would have never approved of the spaghetti strap crop top that I paired underneath overall shorts with one buckle left intentionally unbuckled, exposing my midriff in the name of fashion. I didn't get to have the life I wanted living with my mother, but I had the freedom to express who I wanted to be. Through painted baby blue bedrooms and beaded entryway curtains and daisy-flowered stickers. Sometimes I'm not sure if I made the right decision going back to Atlanta. My mother had promised I could continue my piano lessons if I came home, but then once I was actually back, she said we couldn't afford it. In fact, coming home, it was the opposite of what I expected. And I learned that the ways in which people love you when you're far away aren't always the same ways that they love you when you're finally close. I was excited when I landed back in Atlanta, but the mood had shifted. I asked my mother to help me carry my backpack and she told me that I was an adult now. You're an adult now, a big girl, carry your own backpack. She drove us back to our house in Atlanta, singing If It Makes You Happy by Sheryl Crow, with vengeance and eyes watering up. Something had shifted since I was away. Everything felt different, but I was happy to be home with her. We couldn't afford music lessons, and we didn't have time for three dance classes in a row. My mother didn't give me tutoring books to read. Instead, when I started third grade, she got me a subscription to Cosmo and Teen Vogue and Seventeen. And eventually, when I got to middle school, Paste Magazine. The extracurriculars were very different living with my mother. We didn't have a piano. I had magazines. She didn't own a guitar or any instruments for me to play, 
We watched television and listened to the radio in the car. It would be years until I could get my hands on another musical instrument. In 1998, I still dreamed of making my own music. I just had no way to do it. So I'd stay up all night writing lyrics in my composition notebooks, planning out different themes of each hypothetical concept album. I would cut up magazines and printed photographs I took that were lying around and mock up album covers for the albums I wanted to make. I did this almost incessantly. Sometimes the vision for an album would come to me in the middle of the night and I would shoot up from my bed with excitement, with an itch, needing to execute my vision. I'd stay up all night while my parents were asleep, planning, prepping for my big first album release. I would carefully split open the blank jewel cases that I found lying around making sure to not crack the plastic as I broke them open to gain access to the backs inside. I'd placed a tiny piece of paper inside the inlay so you could see my name from the outside of the case, making sure there wasn't an inch untouched from my artistic vision. I'd make sure the siding had my name on it, drawn from the inside and the album title. I made sure that every inch was considered and executed with care so that when I got my own band together and we finally recorded my songs to CD, I was ready. And I knew exactly what it was going to sound like and look like. I cut out a photo my grandmother took of me that I liked enough and pasted it onto a magazine cutout of a Nintendo Pokemon ad. I took my newest third grade class photo and placed the image onto a photo I took of the bottom of a swimming pool, which I had taken with a waterproof disposable camera my parents let me buy. I spent the entire night digging through photos in our family photo box, trying to find pictures I took or my parents took that I knew they wouldn't notice if they went missing or cared if they were cut up. Photos I took of trees, the sky, what life looked like from the bottom of a swimming pool, moody photos of my room in the middle of the night, photos of myself I took in my bedroom mirror with the flash blinding the viewer from seeing my face, photos of floral curtains from my grandmother's house, and different versions of photos of the sky that I took, all cut up and glued together to express a visual feeling of what I wanted the album to sound like. I cut them up carefully, and arranged them in a collage and glued them all together. I waited for the glue to dry and then wrote the song titles on the top of the collage with a black sharpie and stuck the collage inside the jewel case. I went onto our home computer and in MS Paint designed a CD cover. I printed it out and cut it into a shape of a CD and stuck it inside where a CD was meant to be, jamming the paper through the plastic teeth I was done. I took a step back from my bed, which I was using as my workspace, 
pieces of pictures and scraps of paper, scissors and glue sticks surrounding me in a pit of creative chaos that stormed through my bedroom in the middle of the night. I stared at the hours of work I had just done. Then I looked down at the stack of CDs beside me. I had been creating, on and off, for months. The feeling of pride and excitement shifted into sadness, into fear, into a painful pit of anxiety from feeling completely stuck, stuck in my youth. Once I saw the size of the stack of jewel cases and the emptiness where the CDs were meant to be, my reality hit me. There was nothing that I could actually do. I could continue to make these fake mock-up CDs, temporarily filling the void of making music, submitting to the short-lived and simple but fleeting joy it gave me. But I knew, deep down, with each CD cover that I made, I became more and more defeated and more and more hungry for the real thing. A physical sound, the ability to record. I realized I could never actually fill these empty relics or the void they were creating. Not now. The CDs would remain a mere cutout until I was older. I had to sit around and just wait. The missing piece inside the carefully handcrafted jewel case where the CD was supposed to be, became a void. I realized I couldn't yet fill. Their presence, these objects, started to feel more like a painful reminder of the youth that I was stuck in. The painful age of knowing exactly what you want and not having the means or ability to know how to get it. Jewel cases filled merely with just the idea of sound. Little tunes I had started to write in my head that had to just remain there, stuck there, just like I was, stuck in my youth. I realized it didn't matter how meticulously I crafted each album I dreamt of. It didn't matter how determined I was to create the life I wanted for myself, how considerately I wrote my name on the inside of the tray liner, or how much work I put into mapping out the order of the tracks, making sure the mood of the record flowed seamlessly from one song to the next, editing the order of the tracks over and over. I picked up the stack of albums I had been making, and I tucked the CDs away in a drawer. I gathered up the scraps of magazines and photos I had cut up, now scattered throughout my bedroom, and I cleaned them all up, threw what was left over in the trash. In the morning, I didn't even want to see any evidence of what I had done. I didn't want my mother grounding me for my room being a complete disaster. No one 
could see what I had been doing in the night, my parents would never understand, and it would only lead to more disappointment, more feelings of being stuck, more alone, not understood. I took the scrap of the Blink-182 and newfound glory cutout I'd ripped from my Teen Vogue and taped it onto my bedroom wall. Then I took a step back and looked up at it. Sure, I was only eight years old now, and it felt useless and pointless at this moment. But one day, I was going to start my own band. Over the next two decades, that newfound glory cutout found its way from my fourth grade binder to my sixth grade binder, back onto my walls in college. It hung in a frame in my living room while I had amnesia. I'd gotten tickets to see them play just before my accident. I had to sell all the other tickets to the concerts I'd been planning and attending, living out memories reminiscent of youth. Sadly, I couldn't go to see Nutrimoke Hotel. I was still in the thick of my concussion. But for the newfound glory show, I thought I was finally ready. Nate and I were now closer than ever. The amnesia was getting better, I thought, and I decided to try and push myself to go. Nate and I decided that if the stimulation was too much for me, we could just leave. So we intentionally got there a little late to avoid the crowds. Even just getting there felt like sleepwalking, and everyone seemed to be a lot less rowdy, a lot older, like they'd mellowed out over the years. It felt quiet, like a movie theater during a matinee. I'd put aside some money for a hoodie from the merch table, but I just couldn't make a decision for some reason on what I wanted to get. I bought a hoodie anyways, hoping to like it later. Walking into the venue, the crowd seemed so far away. I felt like I was watching from the sidelines. So I decided I wanted to move a little closer. I wanted to feel what my childhood felt like. I wanted to hold the thick air and let the sound between the speakers consume me. I wanted to be transported. When Newfound Glory finally took the stage, I couldn't speak much or sing along, but I enjoyed the feeling of the crowd around me, the energy, the excitement, the thrill of it all. I stood very small in the front row as everyone else towered over me. It felt like when I got to see them when I was 12 years old. It felt exciting like childhood. Nate looked back at me smiling. At times he circled his arms around me so no one would bump me or concuss me any further than I already was. I could tell that he was happy that I could finally get out of the house and I was happy he encouraged me to go. Even if I was starting to feel dazed and confused again at this point. After the show, we stuck around to meet the band. I walked up to them sitting behind a folding table and I pulled out my framed magazine cutout of that 1999 newfound glory I'd kept since the third grade. I came up to the table 
and ask each of them to sign my picture of them. One by one, I watched their faces, eager to meet a fan, shifted once I laid down what I was holding. Their gazes went from excited to midlife crisis in a matter of seconds. Look how young I used to be, the drummer said. Look how thin I used to be. The bass player passed the picture to the guitarist. Wow. Each of them speechless, holding something from their youth, from my youth, our current realities meeting right there at this table, doing the math on how old I must be. Later, Nate laughed and said he enjoyed watching me one by one ruin each band member's day with my childhood relic. He took a photo of me with the lead singer, who looked confused and disappointed as I held up the signed picture of one of my favorite bands from elementary school. And even though I'd finally seemed well enough to attend my first concert after the accident, in this photo, you can see the blissful days in my eyes, shifting as I started to mistake the fog of amnesia for love. to Dear Young Rocker, Season 4. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Office. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Tatoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.